0: Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Angela O'Hagan, the Deputy Director of the Wise Centre for Economic Justice, to talk about feminist economics and how her work and the work of the Wise Centre has influenced Scottish Government policy. Angela, thank you so much for coming on to today's show.
1: Hi Craig, it's a real pleasure to be here, thanks very much for asking.
0: Now, I want to start, Angela, by asking you a really big question. What do we mean by feminist economics?
1: Well, how long, how long does this run?
0: <laughs> Take as long as you need. As <laughs> well, you should
1: be warned. You know, I can talk for Scotland. <laughs> so, well, feminist economics is really about taking not just, I think, an alternative view on economics, but actually bringing to light what is generally, you know, made invisible in so-called, you know, established or, or classical economic models. Now, I'm not an economist, so I come at everything from a, a policy perspective. But for me, feminist economics is about making visible the central role of care and the provisioning of care in our economy. And that's a central tenet of feminist economics. On the basis that care isn't counted, the kind of care that we provide in the home, that domestic labor, which is highly gendered in terms of how it's divided between women and men in in that kind of heteronormative way within households, that that's not counted as contributing to our our economy or or our economic output so all that cleaning all those dinners all that looking after sick children doing the shopping looking in on your neighbour washing the uniforms for school or for work the next day that contributes to the so-called productive economy is invisible and if something's invisible then it tends not to be valued In our current economic models. So it's about saying, well, we need to value care, we need to value the provision of care, we need to value this invisible contribution to the economy. And in making that visible, it's about challenging a lot of the norms of established economic policy, economic thinking, where, you know, what we do count is what's valuable. So what we count is what we can see. So, the you know, GDP gross domestic product is based on finished goods and services to market so things that we can point at and count like bridges or finished goods mm-hmm. or as one of our one of the, the the academics we really look up to in the wise centre is Marlon Waring from New Zealand mm. and a long time ago and Marlon's also a, a a a distinguished scholar, but she's a, a GCU honorary graduate, we're delighted to see. And she pointed out, you know, years ago, I mean, this is the madness of the current economic system, where you have something like a massive oil tanker disaster, and GDP is indicated to have gone up, because people have had to buy lots of services and goods to clean up a massive environmental disaster. But that shows up as a positive economic outcome. So that's the kind of madness that we're dealing with here. And so, you know, if we're talking about, for example, the current context of COVID, you know, we're quite happy to stand on their their front steps and clap for carers. But are we paying for care? Are we paying a decent wage? Are we paying a wage that reflects the skill, the commitment, the, the value of that work? And why is it that we don't value that work? well from a feminist economics perspective we would argue that that work is largely done by women and therefore has an inherent lesser value than those jobs that are, are you know traditionally dominated by men
0: why is it seen to have a lesser value then angela
1: what we know from all sorts of you know conceptual work and empirical work is that if a job or activities are done by women they have traditionally been been of less considered to be of less value and care is the prime example and care is still talked about you know social care or child care are still talked about as low skilled occupations but they're highly highly skilled occupations why else would we want we wouldn't want somebody with a low skill level looking after our children or our family members so of course they're highly skilled but because care has traditionally been done by women in the home and been unpaid then it's not come into this classification of activity of value and so so that's that's a central challenge from feminist economics
0: so how do we put that into practice how can we overcome these challenges
1: well lots of lots of ways i mean that's what we do at, at wise we look at all these different structures whether it's the labor market or the household employers organizations and look at how and I look at, at you know, public policy and we all across our different specialisms within the centres because there's economists, there's political scientists, there's sociologists, there's there's historians and lawyers. So there's all sorts of perspectives within the team. And so we're looking at um, how these structures that we maybe kind of on a daily basis take for granted but how these structures reinforce these gendered divisions and these gendered norms these gendered stereotypes when it comes to occupation you know what we call occupational segregation so where women and men are kind of Uh, end up or directed to in in the labour market the kind of jobs that women and men do which has a bearing on on unequal pay and the pay gap it has a bearing on lifetime earnings etc and so through our research through our community engagement and through our policy work with the Scottish government but internationally as well we are trying to bring a different perspective and trying to evidence that perspective with our research You know, so that economic policy, social renewal policy, the the recovery from COVID, again, is a good example. You know, when we've seen the occupations that have been most affected by lockdown and shutdown over the last year have been mainly been areas where women predominate retail, hospitality, cleaning, catering. Women predominate in those areas again, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier, because they are lower valued jobs, lower paid jobs, but they've been most affected either by shutdown or by being key workers. So women in retail and of course women in healthcare and social care, where they are the majority of of the workers. So through our blog series, through the partnerships we have, through the Global Challenges Fund, with colleagues in South Africa and colleagues all around the world, Turkey, Italy, I've just finished a a special issue of a journal with colleagues um, submitting from from all over the world, looking at these issues around the division of household labour, division within the labour market, um, and how, unless we're really careful, that's going to be reinforced you know, coming out of COVID, because what, what the pandemic has really revealed is how deeply entrenched these inequalities are, yeah. not just on our doorstep here in Glasgow, but, but internationally, globally, it's it's an issue. But what we see is a response that is is gendered, but gender blind, gendered the wrong way. The European Commission Resilience and Recovery Fund, despite having all the data around that women are in these sectors that are most affected by the downturn in COVID, The recovery funds were directed at areas of the economy where men predominate. So that's the kind of work that we do to reveal those biases in public policy decisions. And of course, the budget is part of that. The budget, you know, know, takes us into the policy process. In a way, it completes the policy process. So that's the kind of stuff we we try to do at at WISE.
0: We'll talk a bit more in detail about some of the work that the WISE Centre does, but what would a gender balanced budget look like?
1: Oh, a gender balanced budget. Well, that's not really what we're aiming for in gender budgeting, because gender budgeting is not about having a separate budget for women and men, or about having the same level of spend for women and men. It's about taking what I've just been talking about, these these unequal structures of the economy, of the household, of, of wider kind of societal norms, and looking to see how they play out in institutional policy making and the kinds of decisions that are made around raising revenue and spending revenue because they all have a gendered dimension and the argument for gender budgeting is that if we accept that a budget is a government's principal expression of its priorities then that tells us who and what it values as well And so if we see that there are spending decisions that are going to continue to negatively affect women or that there hasn't been the kind of impact, the kind of analysis that that there needs to be to identify these gendered factors and try to mitigate for them, try to, to turn that around really. So gender budget analysis looks at the process of building in gender analysis or indeed leaving it out and the impacts that those decisions have. And that varies or that applies really to um, revenue, so tax raising and other forms of revenue, and also spend, so right across spend and sometimes the interplay between the two of them, because what we've seen from the UK government since um, the austerity budgeting from 2007-2008 onwards is that some of the, the tax giveaways that benefited higher end earners, mainly men, were paid for by taking money out the social security system. So who was worst affected? Women. Who was particularly worst affected? Women of color and women, black and Asian women with children, with larger families, because that's where the money was taken from the system, was taken from child benefit and other family and household related support. And that offset um, some of the, the tax giveaways. So some of that lost revenue. And that's something that we're looking at more and more from a human rights perspective as well, that there is an obligation on governments to make sure that they maximize available resources for the progressive realization of rights. I I just love that phrase. (laughs) Um, I'm gonna get a special anorak with tax justice (laughs) on it. But it's really important because how we raise and how we spend money says a lot about what a government's priorities are and how they see the world. And so, from the Y Center perspective, we see the world from an economic justice perspective, and the need to to advance and, and to 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 make economic justice a reality for for more people than it currently is in an economy that is characterised the way ours is—you know, low wages, precarious work, and highly gendered.
0: We're 13 years on from those first budgets of austerity from 2007-2008. Are things any better since then? <laughs>
1: Are things any better? Well, has there been a significant change in government at the UK level? Not really. Period. The
0: party have been in power for the last decade.
1: Yeah, it's the same party in power. And so we've again, coming back to COVID, you know, again, is, is the gift that keeps on giving. The absence of of any kind of gender impact assessment. UK budget, the UK government don't do an equality impact or a gender impact assessment of the budget. We've seen... Some of the COVID related measures, like support for self-employment and small business, again, not taking account of women's businesses tend to be smaller, tend to have smaller turnovers. So so the, the way the criteria are set, women are missing out, all for the sake of doing what they're required to do under the public sector equality duty, which is to conduct an equality impact assessment. What we do have in Scotland is a wee bit different. Since 2009, Um, We've had an equality budget statement as part of the budget process in Scotland and part of the budgetary documentation in Scotland, and that's very much a work in progress, we're the only country within the UK that currently does that, and as I say it's a work in progress, it's not perfect by a long shot. But there is a lot of effort going on within the Scottish Government to build the confidence and and competence, the familiarity with the kinds of analysis that we're asking policymakers to do. And I've been fortunate enough to be the chair of the Equality Budgets Advisory Group for the last few years that's trying to drive this work on. Now I say I've been fortunate other people might say it's their misfortune. <laughs> <laughs> I've been pushing and pushing for this for this to happen. And so there's, there's a whole lot of things going on, really, to try and improve that and to try and improve the linkages between how policy is formulated. So what's the what's the objective? And to my mind, the, the question is always, is what we're proposing to do going to advance equality and the realisation of rights? Because if it's not, why are we doing it? because that's surely what you want to do as a government. So do those decisions line up with how you're allocating your spending? And do they line up with the the overarching aspirations in the Scottish context of the national performance framework, which says, you know, kind of sets the direction of where we want to be. So the work of eBank, the Equality Budgets Advisory Group, is, is about trying to get that, you know, those ducks in a row, if you like, you know, the relationship between the budget and the national performance framework. Um, so that things are all going in the right direction and that folk are building their skill and building that analytical capacity. So it's, it's been the work <laughs> of many years and it might take a bit longer.
0: That leads me quite nicely onto my next question, Angela. It's a, I'm going to give you a two-pronged question here. It's what are the best examples around the world of countries that have adopted feminist economics and how does Scotland compare with them?
1: Well, feminist economics is, is a global thing and um, at WISE we're really um, very active. International Association for Feminist Economics. Some listeners might remember, well, firstly, they might remember that we had some lovely sunshine um, in the summer of 2019, if people can remember what it was like to be outside. Um, That's a while (laughs) ago now. But we were really, really fortunate to host the International Association for Feminist Economics annual conference at GCU. And it was was a fantastic event, because the sun shone and with delegates from all over the world. And we were saying, I remember saying to, to visitors, you know, if you see people wandering about, they can really confuse there, the local people, because we don't recognise this big <laughs> light in the sky. But what that did though, was showcase feminist economics as an academic discipline and as a and an academic discipline with global force. Because what you'll find within feminist economics is a lot of the scholars are also activists as well either you know, working with community organisations, working with uh, you know, civil society organisations, as well as working with, with government. And not every feminist e- economist will be involved in gender budgeting. But around the world, gender budgeting's been around for nearly 40 years now. And various countries at different levels of government, so national level, or, or in our case, devolved, or in other places, you know, federal you know, the states or, or autonomous governments, and at local level. And so there's there's there isn't one country you would point to and say they've absolutely cracked it. But there's a lot of really interesting work going on, some of it from a different conceptual perspective, it's some of it very much around participatory budgeting and and involving local people, um, but from a a gender analysis perspective. In other places, there's well being gender budgeting. Now, obviously, in Scotland as well, well-being, economy, and well-being is is a kind of buzzword at the moment. But the well-being gender budgeting approach takes the ideas of of well-being from you know particular um, philosophical approaches as well, Amartya Sen and Martin Martha Nussbaum, um, and their ideas of the capability approach, and overlays. Well, what are those? how to realize that well-being through public finance and structuring public services. So there's all sorts of interesting examples of that around the world. One of the ones that we do look to from from Scotland, um, well, there's a few. If we take the kind of constitutional question, what we see is in Austria and Iceland, they introduced gender budgeting as a constitutional requirement when they were doing some constitutional reform. So pre the crash, financial crash of, of 2007-8, 2007 8, um, Austria were, were going through some constitutional reform and local and national feminist campaigning around gender budgeting secured some very significant change within the budgetary process. In Iceland, well, we know what they did in Iceland, and um, they didn't wring their hands and, and say, Oh dear, the finance sector had a bit of a tight hold on, as they jailed the bankers for <laughs> the, you know, the, the problems that, that were caused. And they said, well, we need to look at ways to try and make sure this doesn't happen again. And gender budgeting was one of the ideas. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect in these countries, but what they've done is introduce legislation and introduce requirements on how policy is made. And that's also what they've done in the south of Spain, in Andalusia, one of the 18 autonomous communities of, of Spain. And since 2000, the early 2000s, 2003, 2005, they've been working to, through a process called G+, and they're now running a whole series of of gender audits that, that look to see how are we making decisions in such a way that we are achieving the kind of social change and economic outcomes that we need to transform our economy, to make the most of all our people, Women and men, and to, for that to have the kind of economic reach and social change, that transformation that that we need. And so, because their their budget's roughly the same as, as the Scottish budget, they're a devolved administration within. Um, they're a very useful example to look to, not just because it would be really nice to you know visit them in Seville, <laughs> and, um, obviously, but no, we've, so. Within WISE and within the work of the Scottish Women's Budget Group, of which I'm also a member, we've had a lot of contact with colleagues from, um, well, from all of these places, because we're all also involved in what's called the European Gender Budgeting Network, which is an informal network of academics and activists and civil society people where we share experience and, and knowledge and encourage one another um, in, in new developments around gender
0: budgeting. Seems like there's a lot of positives from feminist economics and gender budgeting, but are there any drawbacks?
1: How could there possibly be any drawbacks from having a feminist (laughs) perspective on on the world and the transformational change?
0: Yeah, drawbacks is the wrong word. Are there any arguments against feminist economics then?
1: Well, not that I can think of. Why would you argue against the kind of transformative change that that we're calling for? Now, what we have encountered over the years, and I remember uh, our... Ailsa uh, Mackay, who who founded Wise, Ailsa talking about this on more than one occasion, where other economists more. Um, or maybe less heterodox economists would say, well, you know, you can be a feminist and you can be an economist, but you can't be both. You know, <laughs> there's no such thing. Well, of course, there is such a thing. And that's why I was talking about IAFI as this huge, you know very significant community yeah. of, of scholars and, and activists. But what we're trying to do is what, what feminism is trying to do, which is to disrupt the status quo. And so you've got all sorts of of pushback against that there's too many people are too comfortable with the status quo Um, and so we are we're trying to advance not just an argument but an evidenced argument as to why seeing and doing things differently will bring about better results for women and men in all our diversity
0: we've mentioned the why center for economic justice a few times on this podcast and i'm going to ask this another two-prong question here can you give me a potted history of the WISE the Centre and the second one, as the Deputy Director, what does your role entail?
1: A potted history of, of the WISE Centre. We've been around for quite a while now. We started out under the enthusiasm and guidance of Ailsa Mackay, who um, some listeners might remember and many of um, colleagues at GCU will, will remember Ailsa as a friend and a colleague yeah. um, who we sadly lost in 2014. And he also was a really energetic and and passionate campaigner for for women's rights and for equality and dignity and respect. as an economist, she was really keen to challenge all of these kind of established mod- models. And I, I remember, I mean, it's in various Scottish government documentations from the time as well. Ilsa always talking about the limitations of current economic models. And so the Y Centre was set up to, to disrupt, to open up that, that box of, of what I've been talking about, you know, what is currently invisible in economic thinking and economic terms and over the years we've expanded from that that original kind of founder vision of of AIL. so we still are a, a feminist research um, center but our, our range of, ex- of of disciplines that are involved in the center have grown there's historians there's political scientists there's sociologists as well as economists who you know, as I say, we we look at the labour market, we look at childcare, social care, the composition of households, the sharing of resources within households. We look at employment and employer organisations or employing organizations, your workplaces for want of a better word, but we've also expanded this idea of economic justice from a kind of intersectional perspective so looking at the intersections of race, class and gender and that takes us into areas around migration and the discourse around migration and asylum seekers and how people are treated in relation to accessing economic justice and more broadly social justice because we have colleagues from from law as well as from, as I say, history and and politics in there. So as the deputy director, what do I do? Well one of the things I've been trying to do is the blog series and support the working paper series. Now we started the working paper series quite a long time ago and we've had papers from our own membership, including the postdoctoral fellows who've worked with with WISE, Um, some have been. the Ilsa Mackay postdoc fellows. Um, so that's a position, short-term research position funded by GCU, which we very much hope will continue. And colleagues who've been in these positions have gone on to, to you know, really exciting and, and excellent academic appointments elsewhere. But the working paper series is about bringing forward, you know, supporting papers and ideas and development, but particularly maybe supporting early career scholars as well. So I've joined up, for example, with the Women's Budget Group Early Careers Network, which is an international network of young scholars to to support them, because getting your first publication, getting on that publication rung is is hard. But at the same time, the Working Paper series allows us to to showcase the work of our really distinguished colleagues. We have some very distinguished visiting scholars at WISE, and that includes Professor Diane Elson. And Diane's most uh, recent accolade, is she's just been voted one of the top 100 most influential people in gender, e- gender policy globally by the apolitical um, list. So that's the kind of person you want on site. Um, <laughs> at WISE, one of the most influential people in gender equality in the world and Diane is a, is a long-standing visiting scholar with, with WISE. I also started the blog series last year and colleagues from across WISE and outside of WISE contributed to that we, because of where we were last March. We were looking at, at COVID yeah. in all sorts of aspects. So the implications of, um, for example, Nina, Dr. Nina Teasdale, one of the WISE postdocs, Nina wrote about this notion of home not really being the haven when we all of a sudden we all find ourselves at home. Home's not necessarily a safe place for everybody, yeah. And so, Nina wrote a really powerful blog about that. One of our PhD students, Leanne Wilson, wrote another really powerful piece about the pressures on academics, but on, on, on parents and particularly on women, showing that that um, ill, uh, you know, unequal division of, of labor in the household. And myself and uh, Emily Thompson from Wise also wrote about the. Feminist Principles and Gender Principles for, for a post-Covid recovery, and our disappointment in the, the Scottish Government's advisory group on economic recovery that could have gone so much further on, on care as central to the, the economic recovery. So I'll be picking up the blog series again, picking up the working paper series now that we're just about out of teaching um, for this trimester, so turning attention back to to research and showcasing the research that the colleagues do, and that includes some really um, important and very significantly funded European projects around um, migration. Radicalization and and asylum seekers, led by Professor Umut Korkut and his team, and so there's quite a few. Activities coming up in relation to Volpower, which looks at um, asylum seekers and refugees and local community activism. And then there's DRAD for de radicalization, they're about to launch all sorts of things. So there's a lot going on there, and we all have a role in publicizing the work of WISE and, and trying to support it. And one of the cornerstones of showcasing the thinking that characterises-wise is the annual Ailsa Mackay Lecture and this year that will be given by James Hines, who's great fun and uh, not the first man to give the the Ailsa Mackay Lecture Uh and that's on the 20th of May so sadly it will be virtual we won't we won't be in situ but over the years we've had we've packed out the Deep Rose Uh Theatre and other big venues in the university and when we've had some huge names um, that firstly reflected Ailsa's own areas of research around universal basic income so we'd you know Philip Van Parish there gender budgeting Rhonda Sharp from Australia who's really well known in this field she gave the the lecture in 2019 and in between times we've had Nancy Falbra and Stephanie Sugino who are huge names in in feminist economics and, and are also great fun.
0: You've also mentioned as well Angela you've worked quite closely with the Scottish government to influence some of their policy can you talk a wee bit about that?
1: I'm one of a number of people, both within GCU and obviously outside, who you know are, are in membership of various advisory groups with the Scottish Government. Most recently I have been a member of the Social Renewal Advisory Board, which was set up last June, June 2020, um, to look at really well, what are the what were the, the community-based effects, if you like, of, of COVID and how might we how might public policy and the agencies that government works with, so public authorities and third sector organisations, how might things be structured differently, funded differently? What different things need to happen to to address? And so my role there was, I think, others might disagree. <laughs> others might have thought, "Gosh, could she only say the one thing?" But my role there, I think, was to say we need to acknowledge that these the deeply entrenched inequalities that characterise. Scotland's economy, characterised Scottish society, existed before COVID. COVID just made them very, very much worse Mm -hmm. and exposed them. And so now that they have been exposed for all to see, so the inequalities of of income, of housing, of access to public services, how public services were withdrawn in the early stages of of the pandemic. Um, And so disabled people were left without care and, and support we can't allow that collectively, you know, socially, politically, to happen again. And so being involved in something like the Social Renewal Advisory Board is an opportunity to, you know, with the best of goodwill, but, you know, to just keep poking people that that we need to have as our starting point. How is this going to advance equality and and secure dignity and human rights for for everyone? And if what we're talking about isn't going to do that if what's being proposed isn't going to do that then we need to rethink it so it does that that again and so it also means though that working in that way with third sector organizations politicians and civil servants that's a really really rich experience to take back to our classroom at gcu yes. and to be working with our students in you know, at undergrad and, and at postgrad. Um, and there's, a, there's so many of us within, within WISE and within my own department, which is the social sciences department, that have a lot of those external roles, that community engagement and that policy facing engagement that we bring back into the classroom.
0: It's not just your roles at the university though, and your roles in advisory boards, you've been incredibly busy over the last few months. You're about to launch the MSc Human Rights Programme at the university. Could you talk to me about that? <laughs>
1: you we were never going to ask <laughs> about the MSC and human rights. Goodness me. I could not be more excited. Yeah, I was just getting over it. I've been busy for the last few months. I think I'm always busy, but um, who who amongst us I isn't? Listening to well, I don't
0: know how you find the time for, for, for all these things that you're doing.
1: Well, you just have to crack on, really. <laughs> um, The MSc in Human Rights is really, really exciting. We had formal approval just within the last month, so we're in the process of setting up admissions and the website, and this is going to be a a really exciting programme, and it could not have come at a better time. The same week that um, we had approval to to go ahead with the program, the Scottish Government responded to the National Leadership Task Force on on Human Rights with a commitment to introduce a bill in the next parliamentary term to incorporate the International Human Rights Law Conventions in Scotland. Now that all sounds maybe a bit, you know, abstract and and far away. For me, that's about realising rights in practice. What we're talking about is the right to housing, the right to food, the right to family life, and that means you know, people having the right to, or being able to realise their right to be in shared care accommodation, for example. So, real right, human rights are about everyday life. They're not some abstract that that is really far away and removed from us all as individuals. But we have that perception, mm-hmm. and so our programme is very much about taking our tremendous social science department and and research base and applying that knowledge to the realization of rights in practice. And as I say, the timing couldn't be better. There's going to be new legislation, people need to be building their skills, building their knowledge around human rights. And the way we're going to be doing it is, as I say, very applied, very dynamic. I mean, we have a, a module. A, a, I, just, I can't believe we've got a module called "Social Movements and Activism for Change." I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> it's just really exciting, and I suppose it reflects as well my background um, as an activist, as a, a bit of a well, not an agitator, but maybe. But I'm not alone <laughs> in that as well, because I think at GCU, you know, we are about the common goods. We are about bringing knowledge and bringing the academy into community and that's that's what the MSc is about.
0: And on top of all that you're also in the process of writing a book at the moment.
1: Well I'm hoping um yeah to get the MSc set up and I'm in the process hopefully yeah we're just yeah hopefully I'll be writing a book on gender budgeting over the the coming year. Well yeah, another book on gender budgeting. The first one was a, an edited collection with, with colleagues from around the world looking at developments, but particularly in Europe, but colleagues from outside the European Union as well, looking at developments and challenges on gender budgeting. Um, and this one, I hope, Will be um, shorter, <laughs> um, but it'll be more a kind of the what, why, and 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 weird of of gender budgeting. So that all of that should should keep me out of uh, any more mischief for the next wee while. But I doubt it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and as well, Angela, in two thousand nineteen, you were the second ever recipient of the Joe Cox Award.
1: Yes, yeah, the Joe Cox Award for active citizenship from the Political Studies Association. was that was huge personally because you know it's hugely humbling you know anything with with joe's name i mean i I knew joe a little bit i had worked with joe at at oxfam we'd overlapped for for a while there and around the time of of make poverty history and and that campaign in scotland when we hosted the g8 in scotland and I, i remember joe as as full of energy and positive drive and a a wee twinkle in her eye. She was always um, was always a, just a wee bit of cheek, which was great fun um, and very kind. She was very kind. She was a good colleague. So having your work recognized by your peers is always really humbling. And for it to be an award in Joe's name was, was even more so, was even more poignant.
0: Angela, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on today's show. That was really enriching and engaging and I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was really enjoyable, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it too. And no, if you're interested, sign up for the MSC in Human Rights.
0: There you go. that's how we should have finished it. Get your plug in there. Get the plug in for the MSC. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to the show, and I hope you can join us again soon when we'll be in conversation with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts from, you'll find us in All Good Retailers. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been the Common Good Podcast.